Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boys out here, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be alright. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Plate. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So let's get started. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is your girl, Diamond. I am here with the amazing Raquel Willis. If you don't know who she is, <laughs> she is, uh, which you should, um, an activist, a writer, and currently she is the director of communication for Miss Foundation for Women, which was founded in 1973. And it was a, founded by a group of women, but most notable is Gloria Steinem. Um, to I, I, when I heard that you had got the position, I was like, "Oh my God, this is perfect <laughs> for Raquel," because um, you know I just you know they have this long history. And um, before we get into that, I kind of want to start off with something like some people might think maybe superficial, but it's important to us because all the shit about black women is political. I want to talk mm-hmm. about hair. So recently. You have been dining. Well, first of all, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I know you're like, let's get down to business, honey. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming and being a part of Marsha's Play. You have been rocking um, this fro lately that I'm really fucking feeling, especially when I saw you um, at the protest talking about Black trans power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hair is always political for Black women. And yeah. for me, it just seeing you talk your shit and being in your groove, it was, with your fro, it just was like, oh shit, this is, yes, I just, I got so hyped when I watched it. It was so amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with your hair through the lens of your transness? Yeah, um, so it's so funny that, <laughs> you know, we're talking about hair and obviously, you know, I got my little gilda on, honey. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> as, a, as our mutual friend, Aria Saeed out in San Francisco calls it a gilda. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, my hair journey has been so tied to um, my gender journey, of course. Um, so I've had, I have my natural hair out all throughout quarantine. So I actually, I had to do a photo shoot like a week ago. And so they, you know, it was, it was a wig moment. So they, you know, braided my stuff down. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll rock a, a wig for a little minute while it's like down because I can't braid my own hair. That's just not uh, a skill that I think a lot of the girls that I know um, that we were, we had a chance to like, lean into growing up right because that was so reserved i think in a lot of ways for like little cisgender girls right Mm. um and so i didn't get that skill unfortunately maybe one day um so yeah so my i mean i love my natural hair like i don't think i will ever perm it or process it ever again um i i also just I'm not even interested in like coloring it. Like I don't, mm. you know, when I wear my natural hair out, like I don't want it really to be affected in any way. Um, 
and I had a natural hair style in um, high school. Mm. So this was like mid to late to the first uh, decade of the 2000s. And having natural hair back then was not cute, y'all. Like, <laughs> I got Jones on. I got bullied for having this big old afro at that point. So I remember before everyone was like, oh, I love my natural hair. Like, back to black power. Like, no, ma'am. We didn't have, like really products like that like 10 or so years ago we didn't have no damn tutorials <laughs> that you can look up on youtube <laughs> no child i was like i was mixing you know i was up in there cooking up something like with pomades <laughs> and stuff so much petroleum all these like um ingredients that we just didn't really talk about being not so great for your hair being drying yeah. using that like pink sheen the lotion too and it was like it always left this like ashy cast on my hair but it just was what we had um and so i remember actually telling my dad when i was about 12 or so that i didn't want to get my hair cut anymore and part of it was like I really just wanted my hair to be long in some way. I hated having to cut it and having that like stereotypical like black boy cut. Cause right. like that just didn't feel right to me. But I also wanted to bypass the barbershop cause that was a space that just felt hella uncomfortable to me. Mm. Um, I remember, I remember yeah. when I was younger and used to go to the barbershop, they used to have the most inappropriate misogynistic conversations and I didn't have that kind of um, that analysis, but it did feel uncomfortable. Like y'all talking about my mother, y'all talking about my aunties, y'all talking about women in my family, y'all talking about black girls in a way that feels really, even at the time when, you know, I was a young little boy, I think I transitioned early. So this is probably like 12 and I would be like, these conversations are weird. Wait till I go home and tell my mama. And I would tell my mama, she would go up there, y'all don't need to be having these conversations in front of these young little boys. Oh <laughs> y'all teaching them the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, and see, I felt like I, if, I, if I even said anything about being uncomfortable, it would implicate me too much. Because mm. um, my, I mean, they all knew my dad. So it was like, I would be going with my dad and it just be like, also just watching my dad, you know, perform masculinity in a way mm. was also eye opening to me because I was like, what is this? What is this? Like, do you realize like you're playing a role right now? Like you got a script too that you're following. It's not just me. It's like all y'all. Really? Yeah, I like I vividly remember seeing the difference in how boys and girls were treated. And I remember feeling like so out of touch with it. Like I could just like never catch up to being what I was supposed to be by everyone else's standards. Right. And I didn't have language for it, obviously. Like who did? Um but I, I knew something was off. I just, I was like, well, I don't know how to put this in words. Right. And I'm afraid to. <laughs> right. Especially in, the, in, in that time. Um, so how did you, so for me, I remember the YouTube um, craze started to happen with the natural hair thing. And yeah. it was probably like, I think I, I, would, I cut all of my hair. I would do the big chop in 2010. Mm-hmm. And that was like in the begin that really when it was beginning to boom on YouTube and people were um yeah, I remember how I was was I couldn't feel like if I even felt like a ripple of a nap or a curl, I was immediately um putting the creamy crack on there. It was just from the mm -hmm. top it was just a part of especially coming from the background. I came from a family that you know, they're colorists, they're deep in, embedded in colorism and in what good hair. I come from family from the South, so they was very, it was very good hair, bad hair, and you knew exactly what they were talking about when they said good hair, and you knew exactly what they were talking about when they said bad hair. And, um, and so getting a relaxer was literally embedded in all, from all the cis women, getting a, if you're gonna be a girl, 
relaxers how to go. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. And so once I started growing my hair out when I was younger, thinking of get, not getting a relaxer was almost thinking about, similar to thinking like not bathing. Like the, it would be so out of character that I'm like, you got to have a relaxer. So breaking that mold for myself and accepting my own hair was literally a journey for me. How did you come about, you know, accepting your hair as is in its natural state? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So when I got to my senior year of high school, I had like gotten my braces off. I was like, I'ma just, I'ma just do it all. I'ma just change it all up. And I cut my hair off. Mm. Um, and I really felt like cutting my hair off was like part of a time period where I was trying to figure out how I was gonna blend in enough to survive, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I remember, you know, like getting a lot of compliments for cutting my hair off. Like there was so much that I didn't register as anti-blackness then, but just like a lot of anti-blackness around the natural texture. Right. Um, and even, even when I was wearing my hair natural in high school, like I had to wear it a particular way. Like my dad was like, and my grandma was like, this gotta be neat. It's gotta be the right shape. You gonna have to pick it out and pat it down into the right shape every day. Like there wasn't this like, let your natural coral pattern roll out, right? So I was really rocking it as if I was living in the 70s, which was, you know, it was cute for what it was. And then when I, <laughs> when I got to college, I started growing it out more. I finally was an adult. So I was like playing around more with like, mohawks and um high top fades and uh, almost like what you rocking right now it look cute <laughs> and and different colors so i was like doing like i think i did like a magenta well it was like a bright red almost like rihanna red mm -hmm. and i did like a little fade up into that color i did like a purple blue kind of moment when i was like to really start to figure out my gender. And then I started growing my hair out natural my senior year of college back in like 2012, 2013. And I was growing it out with the purpose to permit. Mm, yeah. So because I was like, well, I got to figure out how I'm going to best survive. And you know, the possibility conversation was real. I mean, it still is real for a lot of the Absolutely. girls. Um, and so I was like, well, I got to relax my hair. So it took me a while to get back to the natural. Mm -hmm. um, it's really been the last, I would say the last like three or four years that I've really been back on my full natural stuff. Um, I, I wear, you know, wear protective hairstyles now. Like I really wish I had my like braids um but obviously with COVID 19 like whatever i can do to not be under somebody's breath <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to do that um but yeah i mean i love my natural hair even now like i the last few days i've been like okay girl like i'm ready to to bring her back out but i always miss it you know i'm always yeah. like even when i have my natural hair out i'm missing the like the gilda moments and it's like, you you just, I have to make a choice and then live in it for a little bit and then come back around. Yeah, it's always like that for me, where I switch, you know, when I'm with my natural, it's like, okay, I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, you know, however I'm feeling, I'm feeling this moment. And then I'm like, oh, I, wish, I want some long hair and I want to feel that wind blowing and da, 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 da. And I kind of go back and forth too. So I totally yeah. understand that. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Now listen, I know that what is basic Trans 101 for me could just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. basic for me in this life could be just the beginning for you.
never talk about how we don't know what happened to her, what led to her demise. They profit off of her history, her power, her legacy. They profit off of our history, our power, our legacy. I can't tell you how many of these mostly white organizations have us in their line items for their grant proposals, and they have us in the rhetoric of their speeches. And I want to know, when is the money and the resources going to keep us alive? this week thank you thank you thank you yay, 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 yay. so not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast you know i also donate to other podcasts i donate to other organizations i have my finger on the post of the community and i know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here so you're not only helping to sustain us you're helping to sustain other people in a community Because I put my money where my mouth is. You know, that's just the kind of bitch I am. Community is fuck. (laughs) So thank you. I really, really appreciate you. And if you have not become a patron, why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. Let's talk about Miss. So being the director of communications, they have a history of, you know, just really supporting grassroots um, women's organizations. So putting a trans woman in this position to me, in this era, is a power move for me, to, to, to me, for them to do it. How important, can you talk about the significance of being in this position at this organization that has a legacy? Like, I'm a 50-year-old <laughs> woman's org. Yeah, it is a big deal. Um, I, I think I'm still li- realizing that more and more every day. When I think about the Mess Foundation, I think about it as if it really grew up and evolved alongside the feminist movement. Absolutely. Particularly, you know, the second wave and beyond. And so, you know, there's no running away from the history, honey. You know, it was founded by um, mostly white women. Um, And it has been evolving, I think, alongside the rest of society um in terms of figuring out how to meet the moment of feminism of women's power and really i believe you know there's there's a more expansive 
gender justice conversation to have beyond obviously these binaries. Um, and so that that's some of the work I hope to uh, continue to massage in that space. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I think that it's so important for us to really have more say and more presence and more power in spaces where the capital is moving and flowing. Um, and, you know, obviously I know how precarious capitalism is. I know how devastating it is. It's history, um, particularly for black folks around the world, um, but particularly how it perpetuates so many other systems of oppression. Right. And I realized that, you know, that is the system, the economic system we have, right, currently. And so we, while we're figuring out new alternatives beyond it, um, or to transcend it, we also have to figure out how we're going to survive within it. And so it, it's just, it's been important for me to really start having more of an analysis on building economic power, particularly for Black trans folks. Right. Um, because I really think that that is one of our biggest shots in shifting a lot of conditions. You know, we're seeing it every day. You know, our our people are like, bump these, bump these like folks who are the power brokers in the LGBTQ plus community, bump these like black cis folks who don't really give a fuck about us. Right we're going to find our own ways. And so we're seeing success with like crowdfunding, obviously groups like Glitz Inc. and House of Tulip are doing powerful yeah. things. Y'all yeah. are doing powerful things down there in Dallas yeah. um, with black trans advocacy. And so it's just, it's important. I think also as we look at this phil philanthropic space that our voices are in the room. And not just in the room, but that we are leading the narrative building work. Mm. Like, what is the story that goes along with a fem an intersectional feminist strategy? And that, that analysis is not going to exist without us. Right. You know, when people talk about a Black queer intersectional and feminist lens, that doesn't necessarily tell me that you have particularly a black trans feminism lens coupling with that. Right. Uh, and so that's really important for me. Um, and so I'm, I'm also just doing a lot of um, thought leadership work with other black trans women like Tony Michelle Williams is very interested in us continuing to build out black trans feminist frameworks. Right. Um, with Aria Saeed, of course, our dear friend, mm -hmm. um, and so many other folks, right? Like, I feel like the work you do is a part of this emerging Black trans feminist canon, right? Yeah. It's a part of, you know, our way forward. And so whatever I can do in whatever space I'm in to build containers, mm -hmm for us to discuss, elevate, incubate our solutions, that's what I want to do. And I appreciate Ms. because it has been, particularly in the leadership of our current CEO and President Teresa C. Younger, made an intentional strategic pivot to centering women and girls of color. Like, so that is built into our org strategy. Right. And in that, I'm already seeing, you know, a presence around trans feminist um, ideologies and, and ways of thinking. Like recently, we funded um, a couple of different Black trans groups, including Solutions Not Punishments Collaborative, including Black Trans Media, in addition to other women and girls-led organizations. And so I think what's powerful about Ms, not to go on too long, but what's powerful about Ms is that I see it really as like a hub, the glue between so many different movements. And so what are the things that um, Black trans leaders can learn from the work of Indigenous folks on the ground, right. which we also fund, or 
expanding the reproductive justice conversation, which we also fund, or expanding the conversation on defunding and abolition, which we also fund. And so there's there's so many connections, immigration work, you know, that we, I think, as a, a foundation can be at the center of bringing together. Mm. Another amazing thing that is a part of your particular legacy, I hate talking about legacy like you old, you ain't old, but you know, you're making moves and you're doing things that are changing the culture. And so one of those things is that you were one of the first trans, the first to me that I know of, trans executive editors of a magazine. Mm -hmm. So, in, of Out Magazine. So for me, yeah. that move to me was also a great pivot for that organization. And I couldn't, the, the thing of course, that was the big huge thing was when you, for me, was when you put all those trans feminine leaders of the movement on the page with, uh, when, when we talk about um, Charlene Crothers, um, Barbara Smith, that um, Miss Majors and Tourmaline, is that how you say your name, Tourmaline? Yeah, Tourmaline. Uh, when I saw that, I was like, this is exactly what I expected from Raquel. Like the, what, what, when, when you got, when you launched it, because you've always been so generous and so, um, you know, just really intentional about what you, the work that you put out. And so seeing you do that, I was, I'm telling you, I was sitting in my, uh, on my little desk and was like, yes. <laughs> that was a fucking moment. Because like, why else would they hire you in this position if you, if they weren't gonna let you do this? Do you see what I'm saying? So I was like, oh my God, it was amazing. So can you tell me, it was a powerful moment for me. So can you tell me how that came about, you doing that there? Yeah, I well, I think first, like for me, I think on the outside, maybe to other folks, the different types of work I've done throughout my career, again, I'm not, I'm really still so young, but <laughs> the types of work that I've done throughout my career may look disconnected, but it isn't to me. I feel like I've always been invested in cultural organizing and, and cultural building. Um, whether that's in nonprofit communications or in a traditional journalism lane. Um, and so that's always been important to me. So when I got to out, um, it was important for me to bring all of those lessons that I had learned on the ground, all of those folks that I had met on the ground, um, all of those values that I had deepened on the ground with so much thanks to a lot of the black trans folks, but particularly black trans women in the different circles I've been in um, with me, you know, because it, the win isn't really for me at the end of the day, you know, like it's great to be a first, I guess, like I'm, I'm grateful, I think for those opportunities, but it's not lost on me that with those opportunities, it's also a statement of, the amount of boxes that I've had to check off to even make it to that point. And for me, it's always about leaving the door open for the next person or girl that comes through to not have to check off those boxes. Like, I don't want the next person to have to look like me, think like me necessarily, speak like me, have had the same access that I've had, um, because that's that's not actually the work. The work is actually breaking down those boundaries and barriers. So out, like, I was ready to be clear, you know, queer, queerness, transness is black. It's disabled. It's, it's, it's full of woman, womanish um, <laughs> inclinations. It's full of femininity. It's full of uh, gender nonconformity. It's, it's non-binary. It's, um, so many different things that we just were not seeing in that space. On a queer magazine that was, it was, because before it was very cis white and, and I had exactly. never seen this much blackness being showcased. Yeah, I mean, I know it was powerful. It was also important to continue to deepen that. Like, you know, by the time we got to the end of the year, for me, it was always, I knew that I, there was, I wanted to figure out how to have some kind of like large showcase of 
organ activists and organizers on the ground. And the thing that sucks, of course, is like, you know, I want I, every conversation I was having, I was like trying to like make that happen. And then of course, you know, you get hit with the, the need and the desire of balance from like advertisers and all types of folks. But I knew with the Out 100, which is each year, this like huge showcase of the most powerful, influential, quote unquote, queer and trans people as decided typically by <laughs> a very small group of folks with typically very small lenses um, that I wanted to like really do a showcase on a different way of looking at influence. You know, the folks who influence me the most are black trans folks. The folks who influence the culture, who influence this movement, who built this movement, are black trans and gender non-conforming folks. And each year there is not enough acknowledgement of the influence of the folks moving work on the ground, but also the folks that we lose. Yep. And so with the Trans Obituaries Project, it was kind of upending that idea um of what impact means and i am so deeply impacted every time we lose another black trans person black trans woman i mean we lost three in the last few days that we know of you know and so i really wanted to figure out how to give something to some of the souls that we lost in 2019 in the form of the obituaries that they always deserved mm -hmm. um and then also use that to go into detail about the story of Laylene Polanco extravaganza um, and how she, in her death, has rallied a community, rallied her family to fight for Black trans liberation. And literally, the impact of, of that fight has shifted legislation here in New York, mm. you know, literally the movement to halt solitary confinement has was emboldened by what happened to Laylene. And uh, on a personal level, for me, um, as the executive director of the org that I'm in, we have been trying to get funded a, a, a bailout initiative to get trans women out of jail here in Houston, because it, well, here in Texas, because. Um, you know, we have incidents like, like, like Laylene and Dee Farmer um, who ha are in those same kind of situations here. And recently, because of her case, we got funded to be able to get trans women out of jail. We just, just mm -hmm. launched, <laughs> launched the um, initiative. And so, yes, it definitely has impacted from, from New York all the way down to here. Right. And that's, that's the thing. It's like... <sighs> You know, there's so much devastation, I think, in our communities. And I think that we don't have to just live in the tragedy. Right. Like, we can continue to figure out ways to make the lessons we unfortunately learn mean something greater. Right. And, I, and that's really what I wanted to do with that work and, and with other work, right? And I think there's so many folks who do that. You do that day in and day out so yeah so i i mean and, and that's really how i look at all of my work right like it's it's really all the same work at the core for me is always centering black trans folks and then if things can reverberate out to other other groups great <laughs> you know which they usually do which it does <laughs> yeah So speaking of your other work, so let's go further back and out. Let's talk about Transgender Law Center. So when you were the national organizer there, you started a group, you launched a project called Black Trans Circles, is that right? Mm -hmm. And it's about building leadership um, in trans women in the South and the Midwest and to create kind of community solutions in prevention, healing, resilience, and you know, specific resp responses to violence. And so that what you just said is a perfect segue into that, because I'm all about 
because what I'm what I'm kind of annoyed in seeing. I don't want to say annoyed. That that I'm annoyed in seeing that people are more moved when we are being beat, raped, and killed to actually sow seeds into us, give us fun finances, give us funding. When we really, when we we are out here trying to do preventative programming, and we call for people to fund us. It's kind of like it's no, nobody is moving. But as soon as somebody dies, oh, where can I donate? And so for me, this was a powerful legacy of yours at the Transgender um, Law Center to have something like Black Trans Circles to build that kind of leadership so we can prevent us from dying and we can heal us and we can talk about um, and build the infrastructure to make us thrive. So can you talk about that program? Yeah. Um, so when I got to TLC, um, I actually came in in a communications associate role. So I wasn't initially in a national organizing role, which I don't know if a lot of people outside of that space know. Um, and then it just became apparent, I think, the need for more substantial work happening around trans trans folks of color and particularly black trans folks. Now, I also noticed, you know, while I was there, and this was like before Ola had started his project, because we were, we were both in completely different departments before we came into the program scene. And I have to always give it up to Ola Osaze um, for starting BLMP, the Black LGBTQ plus migrant project. Um, and really leading the charge in a way um, for specific programming around being black and trans. And I mean, as much as everyone talks about how we need to be supporting and protecting black trans folks right now, it was a completely different story just a few years ago. Just a few I mean, years ago. A year ago, to be honest, <laughs> two months ago. Um, so it was really a struggle to make the case for what we needed as Black trans people. And so when I started developing Black trans circles, I knew I wanted to figure out how to alleviate the wreckage that is left in communities when a Black trans woman is killed. And there, and there's a lot of different types of wreckage. You know, there's the wreckage of the the horrible, like, conscience of cis folks who are not invested in in making action around ending the epidemic of violence. Right. There's the wreckage of the folks who have the power and the resources to actually move, but they sit on their asses and don't actually do anything to keep us alive. And then there's the wreckage that most of these other groups don't even consider of our resolve and our will to continue as Black trans people. And it was that space that I really wanted to see, okay, well, what, what are the things that can support these areas? We need more Black trans leaders to be empowered. We need an analysis of healing justice to understand the trauma that we already face as Black trans folks that is deepened when this violence happens. But then we also need to be building networks amongst each other so that we can continue to incubate solutions. Right. And so we started in New Orleans um, because in 2017, that was essentially like ground zero for violence. And it looks like, unfortunately, again, it is. Is that the year that um, China Gibson passed? Right. Yeah. China Gibson, Jaquarius Holland, right. and Sierra McAlveen. Right in Louisiana and it was like within what, like weeks of each other. Right. Like and now, <laughs> and, right. And and now, right. It's like now Texas, Dallas and it's weird, Baton Rouge are like neck and neck this year. Mm -hmm. You know, we just learned about uh Keisha Hardy in um Baton Rouge 
who is the third woman in Louisiana in the last, literally in like about a month. And then of course, all of the murders that have been happening, particularly in Dallas. Um, And so, so it was important to go to those specific areas to see how to bolster those efforts. Now I knew I didn't want to go in working for this national organization saying that I had the answers. I don't have the answers. <laughs> Y'all have the, even as a black trans woman, I don't have the answers. I'm not from New Orleans. I'm not from Louisiana. I'm from Georgia. I'm a Southern woman, but it's a completely different context. And nobody knows better than the per- people who legal, who are actually like residents there. Um, but it was about us having these resources that we could at least build a space for folks to come together to, to delve into political education. What are these systems of oppression plaguing us? Because I believe that that, I believe political education is so key, but also what are the ways that people are figuring out how to survive and how can we share those ways with each other? Yeah. And then what are the projects y'all are working on currently that y'all could be supporting each other better on? And so out of that space, of course, like House of Tulip now, you know, a couple of things went into making House of Tulip um, uh, the success that it is right now, but part of it was some of those initial connections happening with folks like Mariah Moore and uh, Milan Nicole Sherry. Um, And also supporting like Wendy Cooper, another um, local advocate in New Orleans. Legend, legend in New Orleans legend, yes, who was um, leading the Cans Can't Stand campaign. And so that space, in a way, um, brought, I think, more of the the girls into her orbit. So it was, and also just a, just a chance for, for folks to break bread with each other, to love on each other. Yeah. If there was a hard conversation that you know one of the girls need to have with somebody else, you know, like <laughs> have it in that safe space. And then go out and do the work once that weekend summit was over. Mm. And so I, I was so grateful to be able to found it and build the initial framework for it with um, a Soros Equality Fellowship. And then be able to really gift it in a sense to um, some of the other powerful black organizers who made the the later iterations possible, Mickey Bradford in Atlanta, we go way back. And of course, Mariah Moore and Kayla Gore now. So, so it lives on at TLC. Yeah, I think it, it, it was what, with their trans agenda that I was introduced to um, in uh, at Creating Change, I could hear your voice kept coming up and they were talking about how, you know, the work that you was doing in New Orleans really led to the, you know, the shift in culture at TLC in regards to what they were focusing on. And so I think that's beautiful work. I think that we all are doing that culture shifting work. And, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of highlight that. You started off before that, you started off as a writer and you still are a writer, but you know, that was your, you know, your, um, your pathway into, if correct me if I'm wrong, into movement work, writing, right? Well, kind of. It's a complicated story. So, so yeah, I before I went to TLC, I was working in the media industry, but I was working on things that were completely unrelated in general. So I, <laughs> when I graduated from college, I I actually freelanced for a bit. It was like kind of difficult to find a job because um, I, I was a black trans woman. Who, yeah, I had a college degree, but I didn't have no connections. Right. You know, and so I freelanced for a bit. Hey, and before, I, before you move from that, that is really important. People, people, that goes over people's heads so much. Yeah. Just having a degree, just having all these things, we have to have connections. And the people, when we go out here and we try to make stuff happen, if we don't have the connections, we don't have them and they're not going to happen. So that's a part of the allyship. Like you make, help us make connections. <laughs> so if you are listening to this and you have connections and you see black trans women out here trying to do the work, because I know as an executive director, yo, it is some things I'm like, I didn't even have this connection to make this happen. 
Like you're, you're asking me why I didn't do this, why I didn't do that. And it's like, I didn't have the connection. I didn't, I couldn't get the invite. I couldn't get the invite to the, this, this foundation special invite only, or to do the work that I know is important over here. We didn't have the connection. So it's really, really important um, that those connections are important. And if you have them, help us make them. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, and I, and so I didn't have professional connections, but I also was leaving an environment where I was the only openly black trans woman on campus. I did not know another black trans woman who was open about her identity really before, before I moved to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. At like 20, three, 24, you know? So I also just did not have community connections. So I didn't even, even I didn't even look at the nonprofit world as, as an option until I made it to Atlanta. And so I worked at this small newspaper where I, I actually was like stealth for like a, about a year and a half almost, um, was not out as queer, was not out as trans. Um, and was working in a very small town, a conservative town. I mean, this was like the art, this was like pre-Trump, you know, this was like Sarah Palin, you know, honey, they in the backyards tossing up hammers to knock a nail into a wooden stump. Like that's the kind of like college and first job experience I had. Um, and so when I, I left that space, cause I just, it felt like it's, it also felt like something was getting closer and closer to me. Like I was going to be outed, like something was going to happen. I also just got like really weird messages sometimes. Like one time I got a guy saying, I know your secret. Don't worry. I won't tell anyone, but it's like, okay, but why are you telling me you have this information? You know, like, it's like, that kind of weirdness. So yeah. that was happening while the movement for Black Lives was really starting to pop off. Right. And I wrote, I wrote the things that I wanted to write, but I had to write them as if they didn't implicate me, you know? Right. Especially the LGBTQ issues stuff. So, I mean, I couldn't even say I was a feminist in that space without getting hate mail. Um, so yeah, so that long story short, so that was my first job experience. And then I started working at How Stuff Works, which was a media company, but it was in Atlanta based and it wasn't, um, it wasn't really conservative, but the work that they were doing wasn't connected to any of the movement stuff that I was starting to, to be more and more interested in and see myself in. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember there was, the death of Leela Alcorn. There was the death of um, another, it was like another black trans, uh, black man, black cis man at the hands of police. Don't even remember who, cause there was so many during that time period. And I went to work the, each of those days and it was just business as usual. And I was like, I cannot be in spaces where this, y'all get to operate as if this doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then I started doing more work with um, community. Tony Michelle Williams uh, was leading this intern program at Snapco. And so I, I went in as an intern. Like while I had my day job, I would get off and then go be an intern at Snapco. And that kind of brought me more fully into movement. Was that when I met you? Were you doing that when I met you? It, at Insight, right? Did mm -hmm. we meet at Insight? We met at trans uh, sitcom oh no uh actually maybe yeah i think actually so. yeah that was what like 2015 yeah 2014, 2015. 2015. yeah yeah so, actually because that's uh, yeah I, I'm, it was you and mickey b y'all had um we we had we were doing, um trans sitcom which was a bodybuilding um competition for um, trans men that Neo founded and I was a part of the organi or organizing that particular year. And we had, um, we were doing a fashion show and what the, the models didn't show up and you and Mickey said, oh, we oh we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, they said, y'all okay. said, we'll do it. That's, yeah. how we, that's how I met both of y'all. 
And um, right, you were hosting. Yeah. Yo, okay, I'm remembering this now. Yeah, I was hosting it, but I also was the organizer too. Right. <laughs> so we probably we, thought we were some babies. Did we see like the babies? Y'all yeah. were the babies, but that y'all came in clutch as fuck. Because we were like, we do not have no more bottles. Only a few of them came. And y'all was like, oh, we can do it. And it was like, oh, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so in regards to your writing, so you always have been, um, to me, a person, when I when I read your writing, I will read articles that you were featured in, like on Huffington Post and, you know, BuzzFeed and, you know, for Essence. Like when I when I read your writing, you always speaking to me, truth to power. You always are shining light on erased voices and perspectives all the time. How has your passion for writing matured? My passion for writing, how has it matured? Mm -hmm. Um ugh, I would say I I mean I think it's always an evolution. Um because you just, I think as you write more, you read more. As you read more, you write more, hopefully. And I just feel like I have a larger library of re references now. Mm. Which, I mean, this is, like, this is like a portion of my books. But it's like, there's so much to pull from. Um, and I think as Black trans folks, like, that's part of the beauty of our experience, right? It's like, I feel like I'm in the lineage of the Ida B. Wells, right? Particularly right. with the Trans Obituaries Project. Um, I feel like I'm in the lineage of like, and Angela Davis and her, her critiques um, around so many of these systems, including capitalism. Um, I feel like I'm in the lineage of the Barbara Smiths and the Barbara Ransby's and um, but also I think what's also beautiful is, is looking at a lineage that isn't necessarily scholarly or literary. Absolutely. So like being in the lineage of Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, all the way back to like Mary Jones and Francis Thompson and so many folks, Crystal LaBeja mm -hmm. also means that I approach these texts in a different way, with right. a different lens. So you just mentioned that you were from, I'm going some lighter. You just mentioned that you were from Georgia, so you are a Southern belle. <laughs> I am. <laughs> it comes out sometimes. Sometimes. Um, and clearly you are a beautiful woman. So tell me this. Has your newfound ability um, opened up more dating opportunities? Ability in terms of your visibility, oh, you newfound visibility. visibility. Not really. <laughs> Honestly, no. You know, and I, I think it's like interesting because it's it's like having the all the issues that I think like black cis women who are considered successful have, right? Where it's like, especially if you're interested in having a, a black man or masculine partner, it's like, there's an intimidation factor being seen as successful or visible or whatever that we don't we don't even get a chance to talk about i think as black trans women no um, and that's why i'm bringing it up because i don't because i think a lot of people would look at you and say oh she got it going on which you do <laughs> but i'm thinking like you know uh, yeah. i know somebody could look at it and be like you know are there universal trans dating woes that are you still dealing with did it eliminate some shit and basically you saying nah sis nah <laughs> well, it's just you know it's it's hard to say because there's so many things that are moving, right? So it's like, it's that piece of it, right? Of like the work that I do and my presence is intimidating. And, and I guess my like platform and visibility. But it's also like, if you date, it, it's also different too, because like, if you date me, particularly as a black cis hat man, like 
the you know this is like extra but it's like the world knows right or like hella folks know thousands of people will know right and so there's a certain commitment that you have to be coming at me with that is invested in black trans liberation i can't just have any old person right beside me right um i think the other thing too is Even I think even in like community, because I do I consider myself queer, even though I'm mostly dated men and masculine folks and I'm dated trans men, but it's like also I think in queer and trans community, um, it's like there's a different type of intimidation factor because being a public figure in like queer and trans community it's like oh you're the raquel willis like it's like I, that's not sexy to me like right. i want you to know my power and my brilliance and my work but like don't it's like a different type of dehumanizing you know it's almost like that like superwoman trope or whatever where it's like you're dehumanized in the sense of like them feeling like they'll never be worthy for you. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, and it's hard to like articulate those things. I think. No, other- you know who articulated it beautifully? Tyra Banks. Okay. You, there was an interview that she had where she was like, she would go on dates with dudes and she was like, I know the type of nigga that this is because he would say, he would always say, you're Tyra Banks. It wouldn't be Tyra, just a regular. It, it, he would always address her as first and last name because that meant something to him. And yeah. she and she was like, I, I it, it it triggers in her brain, like her radar go off that this dude is not dating Tyra. He's trying to date the Tyra Banks. He's not seeing me as a fully, you know, a fully actualized human. He's seeing whoever that that thing in his mind is that is Tyra Banks. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think I, I, I totally get that. I, I, I think I, I, I don't experience it on your level, I don't think, but I have experienced it on some level because, you know, I do have a name for myself too. And they'll come at me, they'll, they'll come at me on some weird, like weird shit. And I'm like, oh. It's like, I need to bow down. It's like, yeah. why hot to me? Like shit. <laughs> like to be approached like the human that I am you know a queen is still a human right you know so like don't you ain't gotta do all that extra stuff and I I, that bothers me a lot Um, and I also you know the other thing too is like yeah I mean look you know if I wanted to jump off like most any other trans woman or trans feminine person like sure but i've done that you know i've had that experience you know and i that doesn't actually leave me feeling fulfilled right i don't even put energy as much energy into that type of experience anymore are you boycotting dl men am i boycotting dl men (laughs) i feel like i was already doing that in a sense but yeah, I did see some of the critiques of the boycott DL men, yeah. like the origins of the campaign, like who started it. Um, I get it. Yeah. I, get it. I know for me in dating, also I get, I get the, um, I'm too woke for people. Like I'm too, especially in regards to, you know, patriarchy and shit like that. Like I'm, you know, I'm. I, it's hard to find men who are invested in us being equal in a relationship. It's hard to find men who, you know, who are not really invested in the that that kind of ownership and possession and you know, that kind of thing who I, I, I can't find men I, I, when I back in the day when I was in my 20s and I was looking for that um Susie homemaker <laughs> kind of relationship, it worked, yeah, but I feel like yeah, housewife, it it, it would have worked. But now that my I've, I'm well read and I've, you know, evolved, 
I think it took it took me out of a bracket for people. Do you feel that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I I am not interested in being with anyone who makes me feel guilty for thinking too much. At all. Period. So <laughs> look, so that just tells me you ain't thinking enough. And bye. Like I just I don't have the energy for that BS anymore. And I uh, I just, I agree so much, you know, it's almost like, especially being a black trans woman um, with, with a certain, I think, amount of, or at least feeling like you have a certain amount of awareness. It does, it often feels like you're decades removed from, if not centuries removed from a world that could even like produce the type of partner that's worthy of you. Right, yeah. Unfortunately, it's like it's like the world we're creating <laughs> in a way. The world we're creating is going to benefit the girls coming up, but we're not going to be able to enjoy the fruits of our labor. <laughs> we got to make some sacrifices. Yeah. Um, uh, and I don't say that. I don't say that because to discount like anybody's experience. I think you know I have nothing but love and kudos for the. The girls who have figured it out found the ones that work for them. Yeah. Um, and I have a little hope, but I'm not like wasting sleep over it right now. <laughs> you know, I'm loving my solitude. I'm loving kicking somebody out. I'm loving my own space. <laughs> my own bed. Yeah. And I think that's where I'm at now. I'm where I'm, I'm enjoying... I mean, like you said, I'm enjoying my own space and I'm enjoying the power of when I want the comforts of a man, I can have it mm -hmm. and I don't have to deal with the extra stuff. And if you're not stepping up in the way that I want you to step up, I can, be, I don't, back in the day, I thought that it was, it was validating. I thought that having a man was um, a part of womanhood. It was a part that you needed if you wanted to be validated as a woman because that's what the women in my family were. They had husbands. They had men that they were with for years and blah, blah, blah. So I thought that that was a part. Somebody choosing you was a yep. part of your validation of your womanhood. And so I've gotten to the point where it is no longer a part of the validation and I enjoy the freedom from that. Yeah. Yeah. And with all that said, honey... If you find it, you want to holler, honey, I might answer. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that I think that, that we, we have talked about so much, and I so appreciate you being on the show. Um, can you tell them where they can find you? Yeah. Um, so you can definitely find my work at RaquelWillis.com, R-A-Q-U-E-L-W-I-L-L-I-S. Um, I'm on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, IG as Raquel Willis. Um, and, and if you want to find out more about the Miss Foundation, you can check out forwomen.org, F-O-R-W-O-M-E-N.org. And I will put all the links down in the bottom so you can check her out and check out the work that she has. She has always be, been generous with her platform. She is always innovating and creating something new. So Aww. she's definitely a thought leader in our community that I am so proud to know. I am proud to see your glow up because I met you as a baby. And so yes. just to see your, see your glow up and grow into the woman that you have become, it is so beautiful for me. And I'm so proud of you. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And I'm so proud of you holding it down all the time. I'm glad I got to get on Marshall's plate. Yeah. Next time I got to talk to the, to the full crew. <laughs> right. <laughs> we definitely try, but they, they so busy and working and doing their only fans. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm mad at it. You know, and it's beneficial. So they do what they think. <laughs> Well, all right, y'all. Thank y'all for listening. And um, yeah, check out the links in the bottom. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes, 
and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We will be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamond, S-T-Y-L-Z, at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. You gonna say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, y'all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Every little thing's gonna be all right. Oh, don't you feel?